you've heard the story of integration in Major League Baseball. The year was 1947. 50,000 at the polo grounds where the Giants entertained traditional rivals, the Brooklyn Dodgers. There was Jackie Robinson. Brooklyn Dodgers manager Branch Rickey signed Jackie to a deal, and he broke the color barrier. We are going to play on an equality of talent. Robinson set the league on fire, and the rest is written in books, movies, and all over the backs of baseball cards. But that's not the whole story. Jackie wasn't the first black player to take the field with white pros. He wasn't even the second. 1934, the House of David entered into the Denver Post Tournament, which they call the Little World Series. It's got all the best semi-professional teams coming up from Texas and Arkansas and Colorado and Kansas. They're coming up there to play in that tournament. So they got to beat these guys, right? The prize for winning the tournament was $5,000. And um, that's a lot of money in the Depression. And so Grover Cleveland wanted to win that money. But then the Kansas City Monarchs enter the tournament. So he gets on the telephone. He calls back east. He says, I need two players. He said, give me that black catcher named Bill Perkins. And he said, and give me that other guy by the name of Leroy Satchel Page. And he integrated his team in 1934, long before Brett Rickey ever thought of bringing Jackie Robinson up. And they win that tournament, and the Kansas City Monarchs lose two games. They finish in second both of them to the House of David. House of David pitcher Grover Cleveland Alexander knew these diamonds in the rough from playing against Negro League teams. Before Jackie broke the color barrier, black ball players traveled the country peddling America's pastime as part of the Negro Leagues. Shunned from the majors, segregated by law, and beloved by fans, black players created a league that brought professional baseball into the heart of America's small towns. Nearly 100 years later, MLB is still lacking black participation but it's the inner cities that are being neglected. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. In the 1920s, America was baseball, but it wasn't all about the major league. Communities rallied around company teams, Cities passed over by MLB flocked to stadiums or gathered around mechanical scoreboards to watch pro players barnstorm or play exhibition games for profit. Some of these barnstorming teams were black. There have been all of these uh, African-American baseball teams going back to the turn of the century, and they were functioning as independent teams. They were mostly territorial, and a lot of these uh, teams played play, uh, all-white teams. But uh, without a league, they could not stop players from jumping. And also, the league gave them like a credibility that rated them with other leagues. Uh, the mood was there was a lot of great players, especially after the war. And you had a lot of guys who wanted to take advantage of all the opportunities they had. And uh, Ruth Foster and these individual owners, they all met. And they needed to have Ruth Foster because he controlled four of the teams. So they met. And um, that was in February 1920, and uh, they formed the first lasting Negro League. That was Phil S. Dixon, baseball and Negro League historian. The Negro League thrived, even playing a colored World Series each year until the Great Depression. The Depression dissolved many of the Negro League teams in 1930, but that wasn't the end. The, the second era started, we'll just say around 1931. So some teams that were really strong 
they went on the barnstorm and did quite well. So by 1933, 34, they decided, since the Negro National League name was available, to organize their own Negro National League. So they organized a second Negro National League, and it was in the East, where the original one had been in the West. And by 1937, the teams out West, they ended up reorganizing and for the first time since 1931, and they called themselves the Negro American League. So you ended up with a Negro National League and a Negro American League, and that's how the era ended with these teams, and they played that way right up to a period where Jackie Robinson went into the major leagues, and of course their teams became decimated by players going to the major leagues. The Negro League survived because they made money. Travel was difficult, and in an age before massive stadiums and broadcast media, most Americans got their baseball fix from nomadic teams. The life of a Negro Leaguer was spent on the road. Here's former Negro League All-Star Jim Robinson. We probably were up late the night before because most of the time we played night games. And then after we find a place to eat at night, uh, we're getting back to, to the bus around... 11.30 or 12 o'clock at night. And we're riding on, we were in the bus, we're riding into the next town. And most of the the sleep we got was on the bus. It really took a lot out of us, but we we found a way to manage because we loved what we were doing, and that was playing baseball. As their buses crisscrossed the heartland of America, Negro League players ended up playing quite a lot. Between league contests, teams would stop over in towns and play local teams for a share of the gate proceeds. The games piled up pretty fast. Our season started in late April. Uh, spring training usually consisted of maybe about 10 days. And by late April, early May, we were playing just about every day. And we would get about 140 games in between uh, late April and uh, Labor Day. On a holiday, we'd play a, a morning game or a noon game. And then we'd jump in the bus and play somewhere at 7 o'clock that night. The one thing about our schedule, we got rained out. That, that was it. We, we didn't come back. In fact, there were times when I wasn't too, I was, I was not unhappy at all about a rain out. Being on the road is tough, but especially so for a black man during segregation. Negro League teams spent so many nights on the bus because hotels wouldn't let black players rent rooms. We used to get uh, 2 or $3 a day for meals. By the way, uh, you you know, I, well, $3 a day, you could, you could get a good breakfast for 50 cents during back in those days. The, the most difficult part was finding a good, uh, a decent place to eat after a ball game, playing a night game, and by the time we finished, it was 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And of course, part of the problem was that we played a lot of games in the South and in the Midwest, and uh, we weren't welcome at many of the eating establishments. So there were often times when we would just eat do the best we could. We you know go to the supermarket, get some cold cuts and some bread, and make sandwiches. We did a lot of that. Yet somehow, in the midst of all the institutionalized racism, even in the Jim Crow South, the games went on, and whites lined up to play against and watch Negro stars. We did go. We did play in a lot of places where uh, the fans were segregated. There were there were there were some isolated instances where 
fan was get out of sort of get out of hand, and uh, if that happened, generally we, we didn't get involved, but we would try to get security or law enforcement to handle it because we had to be very careful about how we handle that kind of situation. Our, our, our goal was to play the game and get on the bus and get the hell out of there. Most time we were well treated, especially against a white team. They were glad to have us because it usually boosted their attendance. Racial prejudices went out the window when dollar signs danced in players' eyes. The Negro League coming to town was a big deal and drew crowds to sleepy little cities, keeping town ball alive. Here's Phil S. Dixon again. Everybody came to see black teams play. It was one of the greatest things that your community could do. It was, it was as big as the carnival. It was big as the circus. And certain towns would have ex-big leaguers, they'd have local players, minor league players who would come back, sometimes factory teams. Chester, Pennsylvania in the East was always a good baseball town. Orange, New Jersey was a good baseball town. And, you know, you could always count on places like Dallas and Freeport and Kansas. You could get Wichita and Nebraska, Omaha, and Iowa, Des Moines. These are all great, fantastic baseball towns. And it wasn't because of the major leagues. Town ball was as big as any minor league, and Negro League teams helped to keep town ball alive all over America. While white teams played half of their games in their hometown, the black teams didn't have a home field. Unable to learn how to play in familiar settings, the Negro Leagues promoted aspects of the game that were the same no matter the quality of the field. I think the concentration was on the finer points of the game, base stealing and base running and bunting and hitting behind the runner. We had to adjust to a new ballpark every night, you know? So we really never had a real home field that we could, that we could adjust to, and that, that, made, that made all the difference in the world. Players learning to bunt and hit and field flawlessly helped out greatly when the MLB color wall broke down. As the 40s and 50s rolled on, players on Negro League teams would get signed to big league contracts and bring their special skills with them. Some of these habits have become integral parts of baseball as we know it. Well, you see it every day. You don't realize it. Uh, the change of pace. That was a pitch that black people introduced to baseball, the change of pace. They used to have a slide they called the scuttlefish. Today's baseball players might know it as the bent leg pop-up slide. But Fowler, when he went into uh, the minor leagues, this was in the 1880s, and he was the only black player in the league. And they didn't want a black player in the league. So up until that time, all baseball players slid head first. But they decided they were going to get this uh, Bud Fowler out of the league, so baseball players started sliding feet first. And Bud Fowler introduced, in an indirect way, feet first sliding. It's alive and well. The influences that African-American athletes had on the game, you know, it's undeniable if you know the history the way that I do. The Negro Leagues did change the game. And by the late 40s, the MLB decided to take on black baseball players, following the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. Within 10 years of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, most Negro League teams folded after their talent had fled to the big show. Teams needed to find other ways to keep fans in the seats, like the Indianapolis Clowns did. So a lot of people 
when they hear the word clowns, they had a couple of guys that weren't actual players. They were King Tut and Bebop. He used to do all kind of funny antics, and they'd, they'd run up and up into the stands and grab a spectator's cap and run around. And they, they were quite funny. Some of the guys in the team, in warming up, they would do some some antics with the baseball, call it shadow ball. They do a routine that was somewhat similar to infield practice, but without the ball. It was quite entertaining. The Harlem Globetrotter-esque atmosphere wasn't enough to keep teams afloat, however. And by 1970, even the barnstorming Negro League teams had folded. Major League Baseball, however, swelled with the ranks of the Negro Leagues, boasting around 20% black players. On opening day in 2013, MLB had only 8.5% black players, but the exodus of black talent had been a long time coming. Here's former MLB executive vice president, Jimmy Lee Solomon. The decline in Major League Baseball for African-American players took place in the mid-70s, but it happened at a very gradual rate. And I don't think a lot of people noticed it. And all of a sudden we get to the mid nineties and everybody's looking around and saying, how many, Jesus, it's less than 10%. What gives? Baseball was the American pastime and the, probably the biggest sport in our country between the forties, fifties and sixties. Then all of a sudden around the mid seventies, football and basketball started making their rise to the top. As football and basketball started doing that, there was a natural decline of the African-Americans that started playing the sport. They started, of course, all migrating the other two sports, football and basketball. And so as the interest started growing and kids started wanting to emulate their now new superstars, I don't think baseball noticed that there was, gonna, there was a decline until that decline was way, way below double digits. Major League Baseball knew it had to stop the hemorrhaging of young black talent to the NBA and NFL. But the other leagues had a few advantages that baseball had ignored since the 1970s. Baseball ran into a perfect storm. They ran into a time when budgets got tight in many major metropolitan areas. Many cities no longer had those recreational dollars to spend on their parks and rec. So they started now moving away from the more expensive uh, baseball diamonds that required a lot of maintenance, a lot of, a lot of green space, a lot of equipment. They started moving more to basketball goals with asphalt that needed no maintenance and you could put a chain link net on the goal and it would last forever. And basically the kids could go out and find one basketball and everybody in the neighborhood could play. So you say, well, football is fairly expensive. It needs a lot more space. It needs a lot of equipment. Why would that sport still just flourish in urban America, all over many countries, many uh, states. Well, it's because football is basically a revenue generator. Well, how many football scholarships can you get in a Division One program? People would not be shocked to figure out it was 85. How many basketball scholarships? 15. How many baseball scholarships does the Division One baseball program have? 11.7. In baseball, it is the rare player that gets a full ride. The top players, lucky to get 85% of a scholarship. So you have a lot of partial scholarships in baseball. As parks dwindled and fell into disrepair, black youth lost their space to learn the game. But even more important to learning baseball than having a field is having a teacher to show you the ropes. 
And then there's another little thing that people don't like to talk about, but it's very true. Baseball is a game that success is based upon a command of a collection of skills. Those skills usually learn very early in life and usually taught by a male member of the family. Now go back to the urban American black family. The father is usually absent. And all of a sudden, the woman, the mother is driving the family or running. She's a breadwinner. She's running the family. She doesn't play baseball. She doesn't know baseball. So naturally, the sports where athleticism is more important, where you don't have to be trained, those sports are going to get the athlete that does not get that type of training, learn that skill set as you move forward and grow up. In the late 2000s, Major League Baseball tried to imagine a way to provide both the space and the teachers necessary for kids to learn to love baseball. The answer came to them straight out of Compton. The commissioner kind of challenged all of the executives to come up with ideas as to how we're going to deal with this issue of declining number of African Americans in, in baseball. And one of the things I wanted to do was to take a program that had been started by John Young. John had come up with an idea of reviving baseball in inner cities long before I came to baseball. And it was dubbed the RBI program. But it was not very well funded. It was kind of having a difficult time, uh, I guess, achieving what John's dream had been. So I said, why don't we kind of partner with him? So I, along with many people in other departments at Major League Baseball, started helping fund John and John's programs. And we took it over. I decided that we would try to put a bricks and mortar presence in an urban community. And Compton was the prototype. I used to always say when we built Compton, and, and the academy in Compton, everyone said I was silly for doing it. They said, there's no way you're gonna go there. Nobody's gonna wanna play. The brothers are gonna play basketball and football. They're not gonna wanna come out to your uh, program. And also, they're gonna tear your place up. I said, well, we'll see. We go to Compton and within, I think it was within five years of operation in Compton. Compton had more than a hundred kids on scholarship in baseball. Uh, and, and playing in Division One, Division One programs in baseball, they had more than 200 kids that were playing in the minor leagues, and they had three kids playing in Major League Baseball. That's a five-year turnaround, and the place has never been torn up. It's pristine, and they serve 2,500 kids per year. They don't want to play. Yes, they do. They just want to play. Okay, and you say, well, why is that? Why does that not translate into fans and into players at the major league level? Okay, here's the problem. There's only one Compton. There's only one Houston Acres home where the we have an academy there. We have an academy in New Orleans. We have one in Cincinnati. There's one in Washington, D.C. There's one in uh, San Juan. And, I, and there's one in Philly. I said, but there are so many other kids that have those same needs. So if you don't serve those kids, teach them that sport very early so they understand the game, then they'll always think it's slow and boring. You've got to teach the game to the African-American kids and you'll, be, you'll get more players and you'll get more fans. Kids who understand the game are more likely to fall in love with it. But that also means understanding its history. 
Baseball has black heroes from Jackie Robinson to Hank Aaron to Barry Bonds. But there are some important Negro leaguers who have been left out of the record books. Some with legends to rival Babe Ruth and his called shot. I think when I originally started doing uh, Negro League history, maybe 35, close to 40 years ago, it, it was a focus on certain players. So Satu Page, Coupapa Bell, it's a young guy coming in and having played baseball. I know that one or two guys don't make a team. And some of them uh, are still my favorites, and they're not in the Hall of Fame yet. Hopefully they will be someday. One of them I like is uh, Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe was an outstanding athlete, played third baseman. I think Bill Monroe was probably the greatest third baseman of that whole era. And he was very colorful. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there was a game that they played against a big league team, and Joe McGinty pitched. And Joe McGinty was a famous player for the New York Giants back around the turn of the century. And uh, he pitched that game, and before the game, uh, Monroe told him that he was going to hit a home run off of it. And uh, McGinty said, oh, that'll never happen. And Monroe bet him some money. And so, of course, Bill Monroe, being a great player he was, hit the home run. And as he hit the home run, he ran around the bases backwards, taunting Joe McGinty. And, uh, of course, McGinty had to pay up for the bet as well. You know, in the census, you know, you write down what your occupation is. And uh, on, on Bill Monroe's census, he wrote down world championship baseball player. So Bill Monroe, just an all-time great that doesn't get any recognition. Remembering and fully embracing the lessons taught to them by the Negro Leagues could help Major League Baseball appeal to black youth. MLB wants to cultivate in inner-city black America the exact sentiment that started the Negro Leagues an overwhelming desire to play ball. I think people should remember Negro baseball as a, a group of courageous guys that they decided that baseball was very important to them. We weren't allowed to play in the major leagues. We'll have a league of our own. They decided that they were going to play baseball regardless. They showed that they could compete with them and that they were equal to them and in some cases even better than the uh, supposedly the greatest players in baseball who were playing American National League. So they should be remembered as great players. Special thanks this week to Phil S. Dixon, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Jim Robinson, and Jimmy Lee Solomon. If you like the cast, head over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It's the best way to tell us that you like what we're doing and to spread the word. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And as always, for more narratives moving the world of sports, go to SI.com.